0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 4th, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, the Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, at this point, the most commonly prescribed oral medication for treating early COVID-19 is nirmatrelvir. While this drug has clearly had success in decreasing the number of hospitalizations for severe disease, its uptake has been more limited than one might hope. A couple of factors have contributed to that. First, nirmatrelvir is co-administered with the drug ritonavir. This is necessary to prevent nirmatrelvir from being rapidly metabolized, but unfortunately, it can interfere with the metabolism of many drugs, which has limited its use in people who are receiving some classes of medication. In addition, there have clearly been many episodes of rebound viremia and recurrent symptoms that have discouraged some from taking the drug.
1: Steve, it's hard to know what underlies these rebounds. Is it a problem inherent in this drug, or is it simply that we don't give it for long enough? It's a bit frustrating that, at this point, we don't have a good study of the optimal duration of administration. It could simply be that if we gave a more extended course, the number of rebounds would fall.
2: So Eric and Steve, what we've witnessed over the last three years with the rapid development of different medications to treat COVID and the FDA using novel pathways to authorize, who have emergency use authorization for medicines that we desperately needed over the last three years to prevent illness in and to treat our patients with illness. And I think we see that with nermatrolvir. The development path was expeditious as we needed as a community, but it also means the company's ability to study it in different formats such as longer duration, Eric, as you mentioned, was limited because the challenge with moving quickly is it's difficult to do multiple studies to sort out details around dose and duration. Having said that, the data that established this therapy demonstrated clear efficacy and clinical benefit, especially in those who are at highest risk for disease progression. So I agree, Eric. I wish we had higher resolution data, better defining dose and duration. However, I understand the need to move quickly to have therapies that we could use to treat our patients limited this. It's still not clear to me that the viral rebound that we've all seen in clinical practice is a property of nematrolivir treatment and perhaps the duration of treatment, or is a property of the virus as we understand the kinetics of viral replication over time. And data are conflicting as to the burden of rebound associated with nermatrilvir therapy versus the burden of rebound associated with natural infection. And we need data in all these spaces. But I think we have to balance speed versus perfection as therapies are developed that have clinical benefit in the face of, as we saw in the last three years, a massive global pandemic.
1: Lindsay, I completely agree with your first point about how we very rarely test the duration of therapy for any agent we have. At the same time, I'd argue that this is a pretty important question for this medication, which is being used very widely, and it would have been very helpful to test it. You talked about the various theoretical reasons why rebound might occur, I don't think there's any way to distinguish those without empirical evidence from clinical trials, and I think there's a good justification for doing them. Of course, as we'll talk about, there are new medications coming out, and that might change the entire scenario.
2: Let me clarify. I agree, Eric. I think the need for data better defining the clinical efficacy of different formats of using nematravir are needed and should be conducted and should be conducted with haste. I'm balancing the initial studies to allow demonstration of efficacy in clinical use with follow-on studies which allow us as a community to better understand how to use these agents. And so I completely agree that studies should be conducted immediately that better define how best to use this medication in relation to viral clearance. We do have another
0: drug that's proved effective in outpatients Remdesivir was first used in inpatients with more advanced disease where it had relatively marginal effectiveness, but when it was studied in outpatients, it clearly reduced morbidity. The problem though is that it's administered intravenously and that severely limited its use. So why can't we just give it by mouth?
1: It's a bit ironic that the intestine is designed for absorption, and most of the drugs we use for outpatients are given PO. In fact though, to be orally administered, a drug has to overcome a number of obstacles. It has to be sufficiently soluble so that it can have access to the intestinal epithelium. It has to survive gastric acidity and exposure to the many enzymes in the gut that are designed to degrade complex molecules. It has to be absorbed under the large variety of conditions it's likely to encounter in people with meals or on an empty stomach and in people who are taking drugs that decrease gastric acid production. And it has to not get destroyed by first-pass metabolism in the liver. Finally, it has to produce predictable exposure across these many individuals. Some drugs work really well early in their development. Others need help. There are several avenues to get there. One is to alter the formulation of the drug so that it's better absorbed or is protected as it passes through the stomach. Another is to alter the fundamental structure of the molecule to change its absorption and metabolism. And a third common approach is to make a prodrug. These are compounds that are often inactive themselves, but are converted generally by host enzymes to the active drug.
2: So Eric, as you note, these are fundamental challenges in drug development. And one needs to establish if a drug has efficacy before one manipulates formulation to improve the ability to prescribe and distribute widely to those who need it. An example of this as you well know, is with our antivirals for herpes group infections, like acyclovir and ganciclovir, which for years had low bioavailability. And then formulation manipulation with val-acyclovir and val the valine ester of each, increased bioavailability by nearly a log. And these are examples of drugs that work. And we are then able to manipulate their properties so they can be more easily used in the community. And the difference between an intravenous administered medicine and an oral administered medicine is night and day in terms of our ability to treat our patients and to treat them early in illness and to treat them for a longer period of time if we deem it necessary. So we have some experience with this in the antivirals, but as you point out, Eric, this needs to be sorted out for our medications against COVID.
0: So in that regard, last week we published a study of an investigational drug that goes by the developmental name VV16. So what is that compound?
1: VV16 is a prodrug, not exactly of remdesivir, but of a close analog. It's been tested in an animal model of COVID-19 and shown to be effective. In the clinical trial that we published, participants received drug every 12 hours for five days with higher loading doses on day one, a regimen that had been tested in early phase trials. One of the unusual characteristics of this compound is that it contains a deuterium atom instead of a hydrogen atom. By replacing hydrogen with deuterium, presumably you can slow down the metabolism of some molecules, and I assume that that's why they made this somewhat unusual substitution.
2: And Eric, as we've discussed, the value of early treatment for SARS-CoV-2, and for most infections in general, heightens the importance of having an oral therapy versus an IV therapy to be able to prescribe to our patients as early an illness as possible. So remdesivir, as we've discussed, is intrinsically limited by its intravenous formulation. Thus, alternatives, such as this agent, hold a lot of promise. And how did the clinical trial
1: of VV16 work? This was a single-blinded trial performed in China, which randomized participants to either VV16 or normatrovir. Participants had mild to moderate COVID-19, a positive PCR, and at least one risk factor for progression of disease. It was a non-inferiority trial where the hypothesis was that the time from randomization to sustained clinical recovery, which essentially meant complete resolution of symptoms, would be similar with either drug. There were several secondary endpoints, most notably progression to severe or critical COVID-19 or death. Safety was also monitored through the first 28 days.
0: And what happened?
1: The study included more than 400 patients per arm. About a quarter of them had not been vaccinated. Treatment began fairly late, a median of four days after symptom onset and PCR positivity. Disease was mild in most participants. And so what were the results? VV16 performed equivalently to nirmatrovir with a median recovery time of four to five days. Secondary endpoints all appeared similar as well. However, there were no cases of progression to severe disease or death. Altogether, VV16 appeared to be just as good as nermatrolvir, at least in this population. Of course, the study isn't perfect. After all, what we care most about is avoiding serious illness. And in this study, it appears that the risks were low enough and the number of participants small enough that we didn't see any events. Also, I suspect that both drugs would be even more effective if started earlier in the course of disease.
2: So Eric, as you point out, what we care the most about is prevention of severe illness, which was limited in this study, both by sample size, but also by the nature of the population studied. And I think what's challenging about these non-inferiority or comparison designs is it presumes that the comparator, in this case, nermatrolvir, has a known level of efficacy in this population. Here, a placebo group would be incredibly helpful in better defining the benefit of the new medication, VV-16. However, it gets very complicated the ethics of doing placebo-controlled trials when you're in an at-risk population with an established effective therapy, even though there may be great variability in what that effectiveness means. So these types of designs are important, but they're intrinsically limited for an assessment of absolute efficacy, and it's even more limited when the sample sizes are relatively small. However, as you noted, Eric, this did establish non-inferiority inefficacy, therefore opening the door to an additional class of antivirals to treat SARS-CoV-2 in the outpatient setting. And the ability to treat early in illness is linked to the ability to diagnose early in illness. And so another parameter that we as a community have to think about as we think about oral therapy, oral therapy early in illness, is our ability to diagnose our patients early, likely at home with a rapid test. And that requires a comprehensive approach in the healthcare system to diagnose and then be able to determine if antiviral therapy could be a benefit. But this tool, another oral antiviral agent with a different mechanism, is very attractive to have as a potential option.
0: And Lindsay, this isn't the only oral drug being developed for COVID-19. So when do you think you would use new agents like this if they were approved?
2: So Steve, as always, you ask very challenging questions. The current armamentarium of oral agents, as we've already discussed, pneumatrilvir with its companion ritonavir to boost PK is an important agent. Molnupiravir with a different mechanism increasing missense mutations. And the drug we're discussing now, which is remdesivir analog. All of these agents have different properties and different levels of data that establish efficacy. The efficacy of nirmatrelvir is very attractive, given the high-quality, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trials that were conducted. However, that was done in the context of largely non-immune populations, unvaccinated, limited natural infection, and ritonavir is very challenging in terms of its drug interactions. And in many of our patients who, are at highest risk for progression, they usually have comorbid conditions and require medications that may interact with ritonavir. So this is a substantial challenge in the outpatient arena. Very manageable, but there are significant proportions of our patients who can't easily get nirmatrelvir because of the drug-drug interaction concern, particularly our highest risk patients. Molnupiravir has limited efficacy data, and so many of us, look forward to more data that help us understand how well it works, and therefore can fit into the outpatient regimen. And lastly, new agents like this, particularly ones that are built upon antivirals that we have experience with, that have efficacy in this setting, are very attractive. However, this is a single study with a small number of patients. Thus, we need to be cautious in understanding how well it works. But an agent with a mechanism similar to remdesivir that's orally available would be extremely attractive to complement nematravir or potentially for use in our patients who have significant risk of drug-drug interactions. So it's a very welcome observation, but the data are still limited to feel comfortable with how best to use this agent.
1: One factor worth mentioning, maybe only to dismiss it rapidly, is the idea of combination therapy. Remdesivir and VV16 target the viral polymerase, while nirmatrelvir targets one of the two viral proteases. And therefore, you could imagine that they might be synergistic with one another. Synergy is really important in chronic infections, not as clear that it matters in acute viral infection like COVID-19, where virus disappears relatively rapidly with or without therapy. Still, it's something to keep in mind particularly for those unusual patients who have chronic shedding of virus over time, whose immune systems are incapable of clearing the virus.
2: Eric, I think that's a very important point. And, you know, as a physician who cares for patients with weakened immune systems, both in the cancer center, as well as those who have received organ transplantation and are on chronic immunosuppressive therapy, sadly, Our community has seen too many patients who have prolonged viral shedding over weeks to months. And I think in that setting, you're absolutely correct. We need to think very carefully about how to use these oral agents to try and help clear infection. And currently, they're largely being used in a serial fashion. And we need to think about using them in a combination fashion. As you imply, serial fashion may allow a greater chance for viral escape and viral mutations that may limit the activity of that agent in the future. Granted, this is an extremely small number of patients. This is less than 1% of our patients in general who will get COVID. But in this population who have a severely weakened immune system, we will need to be thinking about how to use these medications in combination and how to do that with even more limited data than we currently have for general use.
1: Steve, when you posed this question, and you suggested that there are many potential drugs out there, I think that's true. And I think that's likely to be just because it takes a long time to develop these small molecules. But I do think that there's a lot of hope for better antivirals. And I'd add that the kinds of things that you learn from making an antiviral against SARS-CoV-2 are the kinds of things that apply to other viruses as well. So I think that there's a lot of learning going on here. And suspect that, that means that we are going to have a better pipeline of antivirals in general because of all the efforts being put into these drugs. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.